0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, Pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. You will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, to focus on the teaching of the word this evening and to uh, get ready to uh, concentrate. So we'll uh, I'll open in uh, prayer after a few moments of silent prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word, that in your word you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that we can understand you and comprehend you, even though our understanding of you is limited and finite, because we are unable to fully understand the ways and the powers and thought of of a God who is infinite and eternal. Father, as we study tonight, we pray that we might be willing to submit our thinking to your word that we might be able to think and concentrate, and that perhaps our understanding of you might be expanded as we come to a greater understanding of who you are and how you interact with your creatures. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Uh, yeah, Jack, none of the Dougs are here, so you might want to get the doors, please. Summertime, everybody's on vacation either that or I scared everybody away last week as we got into this this particular topic. Uh last week I started talking about the uh various things related to the essence of God and trying to understand God and how God is expressed in the scripture. After that of course generated a number of comments uh, after class last week I had both questions for clarification comments and observations And one observation was made by someone who said, what you were really saying tonight was that too often we get to this point where we look at the essence of God in terms of basically the ten attributes we usually talk about, and we get a sense that we control the data about God and we really understand God. But the reality is God is incomprehensible, and though we what we understand about God is true, it is far from exhaustive and it when we start thinking more profoundly about god it just really blows our whole conception of who god is and as i thought about that it reminded me of an episode in the lion the witch and the wardrobe where the little girl lucy i believe is talking to uh, as or has just met aslan aslan is the lion who is the figure that represents Uh, god and uh, the the lord jesus christ and she's talking to the beaver and she meets this lion she says is he safe in other words is he going to do what we think he's going to do is he is he tame you know can we can we control this lion and and the beaver responds by saying no he's not safe but he's good and see that, that's the thing. When we think we control what we know about God and that we've got a handle on God, God is always going to surprise us because he is, he does not operate within the strictures, the confines of finite human understanding. And so often when we probe the depths of scripture and start pushing in areas that we're not used to pushing, it does challenge our conceptions about God. And last time, as I was talking about some of the figures of speech that are used to explain God, uh, it, I was dealing with the issue of the, the emotions related to God. And afterwards, Barb came up and made a interesting observation as well that this, isn't this a lot like the situation in the early church? In the early church, you went from the period of the death of the last apostle sometime around a hundred up to, uh, sometime in the late one hundreds when Tertullian coined the word Trinitas for the Trinity to explain the Trinity. After that, Christians could think about the triunity of God in ways they never could think about it before because they had a vocabulary word they could use to, to capture what the Bible taught about the three Uh, persons in the Godhead and one, one essence, that God was one in terms of who he is, and yet he existed as three distinct persons. Later on, you get into the same kind of problem with vocabulary, limitations of human vocabulary at the Nicene Conference, which was in 325, as they were trying once again to define the nature of Jesus Christ before the Incarnation. And they fought, actually for about 70 years, they fought over two words. One word was the Greek word homoousion, which would mean that Jesus is the same substance as the the Father. Homo meaning same, and andousion meaning essence or substance. And homoousios, the only difference is an iota in the middle, which would mean a similar substance. If he's the same substance, then he's fully God. If he's of similar substance, then he has derivative deity. That was the position of the Arians. And so that was the battle. Later on, when you get into the more enlightened period of the Enlightenment, you get Edward Gibbon and his work on on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, uh, not being a Christian, not understanding the significance of the, and the importance of having, of Jesus being full deity, he, he just dismissed this as, as an argument over, um, over just this one letter I, making the comment that this doesn't make an iota's worth of difference, iota being the Greek letter I. That's where we get that idi- idiom, that saying in English. So that's a nice way to introduce the topic tonight. Then I want to talk about figures of speech and understanding God. I want to go back over some of the things we covered last week, add a few things, because I've done a lot more reading, a lot more studying, a lot more thinking about this subject, and I hope that I can articulate this uh, a little more clearly than last time. The first couple of times you get into something quite this difficult and abstract that involves a lot of uh discussion, controversy, it's a little difficult to work through just how you want to articulate things. And at the core of this is trying to understand this verse that we've come across in 1 uh, Kings that, let me see, there we go. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. And how are we to understand this phrase that the Lord was angry with Solomon? This is a, either we understand this literally or we understand this figuratively. Those are the only two options that we have. Now, the greek word that is used here i mean excuse me the hebrew word that is used here is a verb and my mouse is jumping all over the place anaf which is based on the, that those last two letters the af is the noun for nose and this is a verb that derives from the word for nose because the way a jew would express anger the concept of anger literally in hebrew is to say that someone's nose burns and that's how they express many emotions relating them to physical properties in the body. And so when someone gets mad, their face turns red, their nostrils dilate, and they look angry. So people will look at this sometimes and say, well, see, how can you say, or how can people claim that God doesn't have emotion when it says right there that the Lord's angry? But as you probe into the original language, you realize that what the Hebrew uses is an anthropomorphism, to explain and to to state an anthropopathism, and that is something that needs to be uh, analyzed and understood. And it gets we we really get into a problem because we run into that ceiling that all finite creatures will have when trying to understand the infinite and the incomprehensible. When we try to unscrew the inscrutable and comprehend the incomprehensible we have to recognize what Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways," declares the Lord. "...for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." And the point that God is making here is that we as creatures can only understand God in an extremely limited way because He is infinite. All of his attributes are infinite. He is far beyond anything that exists within the creation. And we have various analogies that people go to to try to explain, for example, the Trinity. I've heard people try to use an egg to explain the Trinity. You have a shell, a white, and a yolk. Have three parts. Problem is, they're not one in the same. There's a unity in the Trinity and a di- difference in the Trinity. You don't have just three distinct parts. And so that breaks down. Other analogies that people use to try to explain God that all come out of the creation side, the creature side, always break down when you try to push them very far in understanding that which is incomprehensible and that which is infinite, because nothing is going to fit. In fact, that shows and displays the very nature of the concept of analogy, because in an analogy what we're doing is using something that is familiar or common to everyone's experience to show some area of similarity, not identity, some area of similarity to something that is unknown, unseen, uh, unexplainable. So we find that the Bible does this through figures of speech, and figures of speech are used throughout the Scripture, and much of the Old Testament is written in poetry. Uh, Even the major prophets, you have a lot of God's, when God speaks, a lot of that is set in poetry. Much of Job is in poetry. Psalms, of course, are poetry. Proverbs are poetry. Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and even many sections within the narrative literature are also in poetry, and poetry has its dynamic because it utilizes these figures of speech. And so if we're going to understand what the Bible means, we have to understand the forms and, and conventions of language that are used. We, this is part of literal interpretation, to recognize that there are figures of speech is a consistent part of understanding what literal plain interpretation means. Some people will criticize Those who hold the literal interpretation say, well, what do you do with, and then they'll cite some passage and say, how can you translate that literally? Well, a figure of speech has a literal meaning. It it, it means something. that's what I tried to emphasize last time is that when we look at these analogies, there is a there is a strong tendency and i ran into more on this this last week an extremely strong tendency for people to think that somehow when you said it's a figure of speech or an analogy that somehow you say, said that it has less significance less meaning less value and that that's really a dismissive concept when the re, if you really understood how literature uses figures of speech, these are enhancements it's it 's a rhetorical way to put something in boldface and italics underline exclamation points it 's not a way of minimizing uh, what is being said and it enhances because it uses comparisons and it uses analogies it uses pictures that dramatize something that makes it stand out much more than if you just set it in standard uh, prose, for example. But you have to understand these analogies. You have to understand what these comparisons are, and that involves getting into the culture of the original language. For example, just imagine how a wooden literal picture of the bride in the Song of Solomon would look according to the groom's description of her in Song of Solomon 4, 1 through 3. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are, and the like is in italics because it's not in the original. So he says, your eyes are doves. Imagine what she looks like if you don't understand the idiom. She's got a bird on each side of her nose. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Been to Israel, that's, you really wonder what that imagery is. But see, that was a common imagery used in that day, and it's an image of beauty. So, I have to probe these things. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes. Which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. What a beautiful way to express the fact that she's got great white teeth and she hasn't lost any of them. Now you ought to put this up on the, your dentist's wall sometime. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a, like a pomegranate. You ever looked at a pomegranate? Now, what's the point of comparison? It's color. It's not texture. It's not the way it's all bumpy on the outside. You know, just, just imagine years ago. And I found this on the internet today and I, I can't wait to get it and, and make a turn it into a uh, slide to show you. Years ago, a sa- Christian satirical rag called the Wittenberg Door published a picture that someone drew of a woman as if all of this was literal. And I had it in my files, used it in transparencies for years to teach figures of speech, and somewhere along the line it got misfiled or lost. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones. Now that's not a complimentary image in our minds divorced from that era, but what he is saying is that she has a stately elegant neck. He's talking. He's extolling her beauty. So we have to understand these figures of speech and these these comparisons that are either stated or they're not stated. For example, when he says that your neck is like the tower of David, there is when we look at the tower of David with the stones and uh, the battlements and everything, there is nothing that is literally there that is part of her neck. Nothing that is in the ana- the analog in the picture that is part of the uh, of of her actual neck, and that's the point I was trying to make last week in understanding these figures of speech that we call anthropomorphisms, zoomorphisms, and anthropopathisms. Is that in all of these kinds of analogies, what is there in the Thing that it, it, something is being compared to is not actually in the other. And that's true time and time and time again in a variety of different uh, figures. Now, I want to give you all a little test tonight. And we're going to see how well you do at spotting statements as to whether or not they are figurative language or not. So you don't have to yell out the answer or raise your hand. You can just have your notes there. You can just number them one through eight. And you can either put uh, F for figurative or L for literal. Okay? You ready? Here we go. Eight statements. You can decide whether they're figurative or literal. The first one is, God is my rock. Is this figurative or literal? Second, You will strike the rock in Exodus 17. All of these are taken out of Scripture. Some of them I put the reference there. Some of them I didn't. You will strike the rock. A third, the rock, his work is perfect. Number four, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. Fifth, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. Sixth, The pot is boiling. Seventh, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Eighth, the tongue is a flame of fire. Now, when you're studying the scriptures, you have to decide when you're looking at something, whether it is a figure of speech or not. And once you decide that it's figurative, you have to be able to identify the kind of figure that it is. And I last... Week I showed you, I still have it up here. This book that standard resource for anybody who's going to study the Bible is called Figures of Speech in the Bible by E.W. Bollinger. Came out in the late 19th century. He classifies over 200 figures of speech and he further subdivides many of them into 40 or 50 significant subcategories. That's a lot of different figures of speech, and all you were taught when you came up through junior high and high school was that there were uh, two, simile and metaphor. And that's just barely scratching the surface, and this is the paucity of our education. And even in his introduction, he decries how terrible it is, even in his day in the late 1800s, that there are only seven or eight books that have uh, been written, since the Protestant Reformation on figures of speech, and uh, three or four of these are only only have sections in them, usually devoted to rhetoric and English, and only sections of them dealing with figures of speech, only one or two that are completely devoted to figures of speech, whereas the ancient Greeks and Romans had many books uh, they truly investigated language and nature of language and grammar, and they developed uh, massive uh, categorization of figures of speech. So we have to understand all these, and it's not always easy. So the first one, God is my rock. Is that literal or figurative? Hmm? Figurative. God, God is my rock. God is a rock. Is, is there any part of rockness that is in God? No. But what you see when you see a rock, and we're thinking about a large rock, those of you who have been to, to Israel, you can think of, uh, you can think of that large rock face there at Caesarea Philippi where you have the gates of Hades and this is where Jesus was talking to Peter and said on this rock I will build my church. Those of you who've just been around Texas, if you've ever been to Enchanted Rock, uh, out on the hill country, second largest granite dome in the country next to Stone Mountain in Atlanta. That's the idea of rock here, something huge, something enormous, something immovable, unshakable, something in which you can hide, and no matter what the storms are, you are protected. That's the imagery here. God is a source of protection. He's immovable. He's unshakable. Second example, you will strike the rock, Exodus 17:6. literal or figurative. Literal, that's when Moses is going to strike the rock with his staff and water will come forth there at Massa or Meribah. Then third, the rock, his work is perfect. Is that literal or figurative? Figurative, that is calling, assigning God the same value of rock. It's just a uh, naming him, calling him the rock. Uh, Fourth, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. Figurative. Pinions. Anybody know what pinions are? What? Jay? What are pinions? Not, not according to the dictionary. It's feathers. It's the outer layer feathers. And so that's the, and that's how it's translated in New American Standard, I think, or King James, rather. He will cover you with his pinions. And it's the picture of a mother bird covering her nest where the young are to protect them. Now, the he there is God. Does God have feathers? No. God does not have feathers. Nobody would say that God has feathers. Does God have wings? No. Nobody says that God has wings. See, what you have in the comparison is not in the analog, which is God. Now, fifth one. Now, this one, unless you look Nahum, Nahum up, it was going to be a tricky one. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. Literal or figurative? Hmm? Well, it looks literal, doesn't it? But in the context, the fir tree stands for that which is made from the fir trees, which is spears, and it's it's a military context. So it is called a metonymy of uh, the uh, source for the what comes from it, and that is so. The fir trees is a figure figure speech. The pot is boiling, literal or figurative? Figurative. Why? Pot doesn't boil. Water boils. So the pot is put for the water. See, this is tricky. We have to think about these things. See, what happens is figures of speech become so common in our everyday language that we fail to realize we're using a figure and we think we're being literal. Okay, uh, seven. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Figurative or literal? No. They don't have Moses. Moses is dead. The prophets are all dead. They have what they wrote. See? you got to be careful. It's tricky. The tongue is a flame of fire. Figurative. Now, does the tongue produce fire? Is the tongue hot? Does the tongue catch things on fire? Literally. No, no. Nothing in the figure is in the analog, in tongue. I keep reiterating that to make that clear. This is consistent throughout many different kinds of figures of speech where there is this comparison between, between two things. Psalm 18.2 is a verse that packs uh, five different metaphors into one verse. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my deliverer, that's literal because God delivers him. My God, my rock, repeats that. Figure again, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. So the horn of my salvation borders on a zoomorphism because it takes the idea of a horn, which relates to an animal, and applies that to God. And God is not a literal horn. There's nothing related to that, but horn represents a power in animals. So that's the imagery that's there. Okay, now that, I hope, kind of perked your interest into paying attention to what could be a rather dry sort of lecture, so I've got lots of water up here, on figures of speech, because you all need this. And it helps you think through what you're reading in Scripture. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what is a figure of speech? And the reason I'm quoting, I, I normally, as you know, don't quote a lot of people, But when you get into a topic like this, I want to show that I'm not generating this out of my own personal opinion, but that the positions I'm taking and the teaching that I'm doing here is based on an extremely strong tradition of teaching within the Christian church going back to the early church. What is the figure of speech? The laws of grammar describe how words normally function. In some cases, this is from Dr. Zuck's book, uh, Basic Bible Interpretation, Dr. Zuck taught the Bible at Dallas Seminary for years. He's now, He was the academic dean. He's now retired. He's the editor of many of the publications Dallas Seminary puts out, their theological journal, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, many other things. And in this work on interpretation, he says, the laws of grammar describe how words normally function. In some cases, however, the speaker or writer purposely sets aside those laws to use new forms, forms we call figures of speech. And then he quotes Bullinger. Why? Because nobody else has done anything close to what Bullinger did in the analysis of, of these concepts. As Bullinger wrote, a figure is simply a word or a sentence thrown into a peculiar form different from its original or simplest meaning or use. If we say it's raining hard, we're using a normal plain statement doesn't really grab your attention so much as if you say it's raining cats and dogs. Are there literal cats and dogs out there? No. It is an idiomatic phrase. We all understand what it means. You say it's a frog strangler out there. If you're you're from Texas, you know what that means. If you're not, you think I'm crazy. Same idea. It's raining uh, and about to produce a flood. So if we say it's raining, cats and dogs, we've used a sentence that means the same thing, but it is an unusual, more colorful way of expressing the same thought. Or when we say the tea kettle is boiling, we mean not the kettle, but the water in it. He goes on to quote another Authority on Interpretation and Bible Study Methods. He says, according to Sterrett, quote, a figure of speech is a word or phrase that is used, communicated, used to communicate something other than its literal, natural meaning. In other words, if you look up uh, tea kettle and boiling in a dictionary, you will get the normal literal meaning. But when it's put into a phrase, it ha- takes on a meaning that is different from the sum of its parts because we create these images in language in order to add drama to our speech. So he says then, he then gives these examples of figurative expressions in modern-day English. That argument doesn't hold water. Now, if I were to say to you, that argument's weak, that doesn't have quite the impact of saying that argument doesn't hold water. It dramatizes, it emphasizes, it, it, it brings out a fuller sense of what I'm trying to say. It doesn't minimize or diminish it. Okay? The argument, uh, he says, stand up for the word of God, and I was tickled to death. He says in the first ar- ar- first example, the argument has nothing to do with literal water. When you say that argument doesn't hold water, it does, argument doesn't involve a pail, doesn't involve a water, water, and it doesn't involve holes. Stand up for the Word of God. Standing up for the Word of God doesn't involve literally standing up. It involves taking a stand for something and supporting the Word of God and affirming it and defending it. And he goes on to say that mean, um, tickled to death doesn't mean you're literally tickled. It just is an idiom for, for meaning you're um, extremely uh, pleased. Okay. Now, he goes on to say, when John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God, he was not pointing to an animal, but to Jesus, who was being compared by John to a lamb. Note, there was nothing about lambness in Jesus. Nothing, he didn't have wool, he didn't walk on four legs, he wasn't uh, uh, short. None of those attribute, literal attributes of a lamb could be applied to Jesus. The individuals hearing those words And readers today, reading those words, are challenged to think of how Jesus was like a lamb. Since the Jews frequently sacrificed lambs, John no doubt had in mind Jesus' forthcoming sacrificial death on behalf of others and in their place. And so it's the role of the lamb that is being compared. Zuck goes on to say in each of these examples, certain aspects of the statements are not true in their normal sense, but yet the sentence are conveying truth. The argument is inadequate um, we are to defend and live in accord with the Bible, we are pleased, uh, Jesus is a substitutionary sacrifice, figures of speech express truths in vivid and interesting ways. And so since the Bible has so many figures of speech, it's important to recognize them and determining what they are communicating because they are communicating something. Now, we have a problem, and that problem is that people don't understand figures of speech. We are all products of our modern government-sponsored education that has conspired to keep us ignorant and uneducated. And so we have a paucity of grammatical and rhetorical education. And so when we hear somebody who makes certain statements that have been stated throughout the centuries in Christianity, we no longer, and I'm talking about even highly educated uh, seminarians and theologians, we just have trouble when it comes to this particular area. And so we focus on the problem. Now, as Bullinger points out in his introduction, as I've mentioned already, little has been done on this. The ancient Greeks and Romans did a lot on it, but during the Middle Ages when there wasn't a lot of education on these areas related to grammar, and, uh, rhetoric, uh, things were lost. At the time that Bullinger wrote, there was a professor by the name of John, uh, Villant Macbeth, who was a professor of r- rhetoric at the University of West Virginia. And he wrote and is quoted by Bullinger as saying, there is not, no even tolerably good treatise on figures existing at present in our language. Is there in any other time? There is no consecutive discussion of them of more than a few pages. The examples brought forward by all others being trivial in the extreme and threadbare, while the main conception of what constitutes the chief class of figures is altogether narrow, erroneous, and unphilosophical. Writers generally, even the ablest, are wholly in the dark as to the precise distinction between a trope and a metonymy, and very few, even literary men, have so much as heard of hypocatastasis or implication, one of the most important of figures, and one, too, that is constantly shedding its light upon us. So we have to take warning from that. Third point in terms of this introduction is that we use figures, therefore, to heighten, dramatize, or emphasize things. The use of figures of speech does not, as I've emphasized already many times, doesn't minimize or diminish what is said, but expresses a literal truth, which is language that is non-literal. A figure of speech adds color, attention, makes abstract ideas more concrete, and encourages reflection upon the figure, which would not otherwise occur. Bollinger writes, Applied to words, a figure denotes some form which a word or sentence takes, different from its ordinary natural form. Note, this is always for the purpose of giving additional force, more life, intensified feeling, and greater emphasis. Whereas today, figurative language is ignorantly spoken of as though it made less of the meaning. Now, I'm going to show you why, what, how this happens all the time. I'm just going to give you one example, but I've run across dozens of these examples in the last week or so. Uh, whereas today, figurative language is ignorantly spoken of as though it made less of the meaning and deprived the words of their power and force. A passage of God's word is quoted and it is met with the cry, Oh, that is figurative, implying that its meaning is weakened or that it has quite a different meaning or that it has no meaning at all. But the very opposite is the case for an unusual form, figura, is never used except to add force to the truth conveyed, emphasis to the statement of it, and depth to the meaning of it. Now, last week, I put this quote up on the board related to uh, impassibility, and if you don't remember what that means, I'll give you a definition in a minute. Uh, Carl F.H. Henry, noted scholar, his work, God, Revelation, Authority is six volumes, I think. And it's thick volumes, and I have to slug my way through it every time I'm reading stuff in there because it is a masterpiece of, of erudition and education. He is very bright. But he writes, Whatever Christian theology means by the impassibility of God, it does not mean that God's love, compassion, and mercy are mere figures of speech. See what he says there? It's a mere figure. So using that word mere, what he does is he's, th- he, he's assuming that a figure of speech is minimized, it, it diminishes the meaning of something rather than intensifying it. And I find this kind of thing in discussions. Again, again, I read an article by Bob Chisholm, who's an Old Testament professor at Dallas Seminary on anthropomorphism, just published within the last uh, six months or year, I think. And in the closing paragraph, he says, we have to be careful not to use mere anthropomorphisms to describe God. Now he's got he's got other problems that I won't go into, but see it's that mentality that somehow if you classify this as a figure of speech, that somehow you said it doesn't mean anything or its meaning is diminished, and that just shows that these guys haven't done their homework on figures of speech. Now, so I pointed out, Bullinger classifies over 200 distinct figures of speech, some with 30, 40 variations each, with names. Now, the next point is to get into what we, I talked about last time, and that is specific is three specific types of figures called zoomorphisms, anthropomorphisms, or uh, anthropopathisms. So fourth point that I want to emphasize is that a figure of speech, this is a figure of speech involving, or these are all figures of speech, involving substitution of one idea or word for another, where the use of a word is in a way that it's not its normal literal meaning. So these are classified as uh, figures of speech involving substitution. Bollinger writes, This change is brought about and prompted by some internal action of the mind which seeks to impress its intensity of feeling upon others. The meaning of the words themselves continues to be literal. The figure lies in the application to the words. This application arises from some actual resemblance between the words or between two or more mental things which are before the mind. Notice it's a resemblance, it's not identity. There's There's a difference between those two things. Now, he goes on to say, when the literal application of the words is contrary to ordinary plain human experience or to the nature of things themselves, and we're compelled to regard the application as figurative. You don't just jump there. There's internal internal clues as to uh, when you have a figure that comes from your study of the word. So by way of a fifth point, these can be applied with reference to sense or with reference to person. The latter when, when you use this kind of a substitution in reference to a person, it can involve personification, where you're attributing human characteristics to inanimate objects. We do this in animated movies. Personification, where we have animals who can talk and reason and do all of these things. That's personification. Uh, we can attribute uh, also we can attribute human characteristics to other things such as God. So one form that we use is a zoomorphism, and I'm going to quote Roy Zuck. Whereas an anthropomorphism ascribes human characteristics to God, a zoomorphism ascribes animal characteristics to God or to others. Now, he leaves something important out of that definition. If you look at every one of the zoomorphisms that are listed by everybody and are listed in Scripture, God doesn't actually possess any of those physical animal characteristics. And that's the point. Whereas an anthropomorphism ascribes human characteristics to God, which he doesn't possess, a zoomorphism ascribes animal characteristics to God, which he doesn't possess. That, that is evident when you look at the data. God doesn't have fingers. He doesn't have nose. He doesn't have ears. He doesn't have eyes. He is non-corporeal. Now, Zuck goes on to say, these are expressive ways of pointing up certain actions and attributes of the Lord in a picturesque way. The psalmist wrote, "God will cover you with His feathers or His pinions." Psalm ninety-one four. Readers would think of young chicks or birds being protected under the wings of the mother hen or bird. Job depicted what he considered to be the furious anger of God lashing out at him when he wrote that God gnashes His teeth at me. God doesn't have teeth. Gnashing is an animal characteristic. Now, here's a couple of other zoomorphisms in scripture. The use of the term horn, Psalm eighteen two, or to brood or to incubate. When you see the whole that that verse in Genesis one two, the Holy Spirit hovered over the earth, that is a word that is used to describe a mother hen or bird brooding or hovering over her nest. And that's the image that's there is a is a zoomorphic image. Then we have the second category. Um, before we get here, uh, other attributes that are used to describe God are interesting. Plant characteristics are ascribed to God. He's uh, The Messiah is called the branch of the Lord. That's attributing a plant characteristic to God in Isaiah 4.2 and Isaiah 11.1. 1. There's another metaphor that probably misses you, as mis- you've probably missed, and that is God is light. We see it so much, God dwells in unapproachable light, but God is light. Genesis 1-3 says God created light. So as the creator, he is distinct from light. Light is not an eternal reality. It is something distinct from God. It is part of the creation, and it is a physical property. You study the physical properties of light in physics. So that it has all of these measurable, finite characteristics that are part of the creation. I have other passage. Another passage talks about God as a consuming fire, a jealous God. So here you have again imagery used to emphasize something about God's God's character. Fire is part of creation. It's a physical substance. It's used to express the intensity of God's judgment, as that which judges those who have uh been disloyal to him. That's the idea in jealousy, being a, again a figure of speech. So now let's move on to anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is the ascribing of human characteristics or actions to God, which he doesn't actually possess. This is this is Zuck's definition. Uh but he doesn't actually possess it. It's in the reference to God's fingers Psalm eight three, his ear, Psalm thirty one two, eyes, Second Chronicles six nine, face, Psalm sixteen eleven, mouth, Numbers twelve eight. Each of these have numerous references. I'm just giving you one, and there are uh, uh, several other anthropomorphisms in Scripture. Now. An anthropomorphism, and one I mentioned last week is the voice of God. Now, I had a couple of people ask me questions on this. Somebody nailed me right after class and said, what do you mean God doesn't have a voice? He speaks. The Scripture says God speaks. The Scripture says they heard his voice. How many times have you heard me say that God's voice was audible? If you had had an MP3 recorder or cassette player, you could have recorded it. Yes, but sound is physical. You can measure it. It, it. It's part of the physical universe. It is part of creation. What God does standing, out, God doesn't have a larynx. God doesn't have a voice box. He doesn't have resonators. He doesn't have any of those things. Voice is a attribute that applies to the physical creation. God is outside of that creation, but as the creator, he is able to manipulate the creation to... Uh, give out that which is heard and sounds to us like a human voice. But it is not. It is not saying that God doesn't speak, that God doesn't communicate, that, but that these are, we have to understand that speaking and voice and these kinds of things, just like that pot boiling, okay, just like they have Moses and the prophets, these are figures of speech, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't have, that there's no reality over there. In fact, it is a way that dramatizes God's ability to communicate to man. Now, the word that we I introduced last week that is a classic historical term that is used to describe uh, the attributes of God, the emo- statements attributing emotion to God, is the term impassibility him being the negative, uh, the middle part, passy coming from passion, meaning to suffer. And what this basically means is God doesn't suffer as a result of what his creatures go through. So it is defined as the attribute of God's being unaffected by anything outside of himself. Those who accept the view, this is from uh, the IVP Short Theological Dictionary, Uh, Those who accept the view that God is impassable hold that he cannot be caused to do or feel anything. And he makes that sound like it's a bad notion because he doesn't like it, because he doesn't understand it. Because of his omnipotence and perfection, critics believe that impassibility would be a barrier to genuine loving relations between God and his creatures. See, he's also assumed that love is an emotion. I'm gonna talk about that again in a minute. That's a mistake people make, is to think that certain things that God commands are emotions. You can't command an emotion. If God commands it, it's not an emotion. Love can't be a, is an emotion. The love that we experience in the created realm changes. It, it's, it's, it's mutable. It, it's, it's up and down. It's based on affections. It's based on all kinds of things. You can't command an emotion. You can't say, be angry, be sad, not be happy can 't do it emotions can 't be commanded mental attitudes can be, and when you look in the scriptures at how you measure love for god it 's never based on feeling it 's based on obedience it 's based on character it 's based on integrity it 's never ever ever based on feeling because it 's not it 's not something that 's mutable it 's based on doing what God says to do because God said so to do it 's based on loyalty. These are the ideas inherent. In, uh, in God's love. Okay. Now, before we run completely run out of time, the one reality that we find in every zoomorphism and anthropomorphism is that God does not actually possess the physical features to which he is compared. They're not on that side of the equation. However, when we come to discussing emotions, In God, something else enters in. People just have this resistance to saying that God doesn't actually have these feelings, that God doesn't actually have emotions. Now, why would that be? Well, let me give you about three reasons. First of all, it's because some assume that from our frame of reference or finite experience that emotion or feeling that we experience is essential to relationship. If God doesn't have emotion, then he can't relate to us. Well, what I'm trying to point out last week is these figures are real. They are figures, and what they are saying is that God does relate to people. So you can't define impassibility as saying, well, that would mean that if that's true, then God can't have a relationship with people. No, because what these figures are saying is that God is capable of relationship. He's capable of intimate relationships with his creatures. Okay, we can't front load the definition, though. Second thing, we assume that saying that God does not have feeling or emotion necessarily means that he is uncaring, unconcerned, distant, unfeeling, cold, uninvolved, and that he is basically a metaphorical iceberg completely removed from human suffering or human pain. That's where our mind goes. But what I'm saying is the whole point of all these figures of speech, the wrath of God, the anger of God, jealousy of God, all these different figures of speech are used to enforce the fact that God is a caring, concerned, involved God who's capable of profound, intimate relationship with his creatures, but that what's on the other side of that comparison is Far, so far beyond anything we could ever think of in terms of feeling or emotion, we can't even comprehend it. That's where we bump into the incomprehensibility of God. God is bigger than anything you've ever, ever thought of or imagined. Now, one thing that we have to recognize is that this doctrine of impassibility is <clears throat> a profound and important doctrine. You may have never heard of it before. That's fine. I never heard of it for many years. Probably read it, looked it up. Didn't think anything profound about the words, but it has become a centerpiece issue in several theological debates within the last 15 or 20 years. One of the people that has written on this is a man named Nicholas Walterstorff. Now, unless you're in philosophy, you've never heard of Nicholas Walterstorff. Nicholas Walterstorff and Alvin Plantinga. Uh, Planning taught at uh, I think they both taught at Notre Dame for a number of years in philosophy of religion department. Walter, Sto- both of them are Reformed. That is, they're they're generally con- thought to be conservative thinkers within the re- Reformed faith, which is uh, Calvinistic um, background faith coming out of I think uh, Calvin College. I think he went to Calvin College up in Grand Rapids. But several years ago. Dr. Walter And Dr. Walterstorff now teaches at Yale. Several years ago, his 23-year-old son died in a tragic accident. This experience generated a reaction in Waltersdorf which led eventually to a revolution in his understanding of God. I'll put his words up on the screen. He writes, Any Christian who reflects on living with grief has to reflect on living with God in grief. And that immediately leads into the issue of impassibility. I knew the traditional picture. God surveys with uninterrupted bliss what transpires in this veil of tears, which is our world. In the situation of my son's death, I found that picture impossible to accept, existentially impossible. I could not live with it. I found it grotesque. Perhaps if I had firmly believed it was the correct picture, I could... See, that's where he shows he was already doubting it. Perhaps if I had firmly believed it was the correct picture, I could eventually have brought myself to the point where I no longer rebelled against it. But by this time, I had already, for more or less theoretical reasons, found the doctrine questionable. This experience pushed me over the edge, one might say. It did more than that, though. It led me to reflect on the doctrine much more thoroughly and seriously than I had before. For I knew that in rejecting the doctrine, I was disagreeing with the greatest minds and hearts of the Christian church. Note that that is the traditional view of the Christian church from the second century to the present is that God is impassable. He said, I was disagreeing with the greatest minds and hearts of the Christian church. I was not, and I am not willing or even able to do that lightly. Now, he's part of a trend that was going on in the the 90s that was shifting away from a traditional, classical, theist view of God. Then he goes on to say what the implications are. Now, this is from a man who is not a dummy. And it's interesting that his analogy that he uses here and what he says, I hadn't read this last week, is almost the same analogy and statement that I used last week. And then I stumbled on this and I said, see, I I don't make this stuff up. Somewhere it's out there. The picture that comes to my mind, he says, is of those sweaters knit in such a way that when you pull on one thread, the whole thing unravels before your eyes. Impassibility is one component in that tightly integrated traditional way of understanding God. My interest in the structure as a whole accordingly led me to become interested in eternity, in simplicity, in asciety, which is a term that I I don't ever use for God, but it's a divine attribute referring to his self-existence. So he's interested in God's eternity and simplicity. That means God's not composed of parts. Uh, in a society and then also in impassibility. Once you pull on the thread of impassibility, a lot of other threads come along. A society, for example, that is God's independence, his unconditionedness. That goes, he says. One also has to give up immutability, changelessness, and eternity. See, now you just thought this was an issue related to whether or not God has emotion or not. This is a profoundly significant issue. You do away with impassibility, Walter Storff says, and he's willing to. He says what you also have to give up is the independence of God. You also have to give up the immutability of God, and you have to give up the eternity of God. Wow. That sounds pretty serious. Now, where this went... In terms of going to its logical conclusion, not everybody goes this way. There are those who do not like the term impassable. I don't think they understand it, but they don't like it. And they want to give it up, and they still hold to the, the uh, these other attributes of God. But Walter Storff tells us there are significant issues here. And every one of these men that went into the openness of God theology that came out in the, in the 90s, rejects any kind of anthropopathic reference to God, and in some cases, they reject some anthropomorphisms. And so what they're doing is they're creating God in our own image. Now, an anthropopathism is a figure of speech ascribing human emotions to God, which he doesn't actually possess, is seen in passages like Zechariah 8.1, I'm Jealous for Zion, God's Rejoicing in Isaiah 62.5, God Expressing Sorrow and Grief in Genesis 6.6, 6, Judges 10.16, Repentance, Genesis six six; anger, Exodus fifteen seven; vengeance, Jeremiah nine nine; hatred, Psalm five five; jealousy, Nahum one two; displeasure, Zechariah one fifteen; and pity, and Joel two eighteen. As Bullinger puts it, it's the idea of ascribing these human emotions to God, it, um, human passions or actions to God. It's also known as condescension. And he gives some other data that I went over last time. I'm going to skip that now. Couple of points to remember: as analogies or comparisons, these are terms that have meaning within a human frame of reference. But according to the definitions of figures of speech, they do not. They are. Let me say it a little better. They don't. They are not identical to essential realities within God. They correspond analogically, but they are not identical to what's on the other side of the comparative equation. Okay. Now, in the discussions on this, as I've read over the past week and years before, is scholars, I mean, this goes back to the Middle Ages, have attempted to deal with this in terms of trying to articulate this in terms of vocabulary. You have those who say, well, God does not have passions, but he has affections. Others would say God has, there's divine emotion as distinct from human emotion." There are others like Norm Geisler who try to express it as immutable feelings in God versus mutable feelings in man. But I find in my reading that the positive side of this is that these attempts recognize and seek to preserve impassibility, but they sacrifice clarity through the use of oxymorons. An oxymoron is a figure of speech where contradictory terms are used to express an idea, so a Immutable feeling is a contradictory idea because a feeling is inherently, by definition, mutable. So you're talking about an immutable mutation. Okay, so again, we're left with this thing called figure of speech. We're bumping into that glass ceiling of incomprehensibility. Now, another question I've addressed a little bit is the one on our love, peace, and joy emotions. But emotions, by definition, are a reaction or response to something. Mindsets, mental attitudes are commanded. Emotions are not. So love in the Bible, as I pointed out, is not measured or characterized by feelings or affective statements, but by actions of obedience, a lack of certain sins, a type of thinking, a loyalty to God. Classic example, Jesus never lost his joy. To say so is the height of heresy. Jesus always had perfect, immutable joy, and he had perfect joy in his humanity. But you read the statements that are made about Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is in emotional turmoil in his humanity. The, emotionally, he is a basket case almost, so much so that he is sweating blood. And people do do that. But... He doesn't lose his joy because that's his mental attitude. See, this is a conflict people have. Well, you know, I I just really feel sad about the loss of someone I love. I can't feel sad. I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to always be joyful. We create these disconnects for people, and they feel like they're somehow out of fellowship and sinning because they feel bad or they're down or they're depressed. But see, joy is a mental attitude. Love is a mental attitude. Uh, Peace is the absence of conflict if you do a word study in the scripture. Okay, so words that we can use that don't refer to emotions or care. Sometimes they used it with an emotional sense, but if you look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, it has the sense of looking after someone, providing for someone, comforting them when they are in times of distress. Comfort itself is not an emotional, emotion or an emotional word. It means to do that which contributes to comfort or to console someone in grief or sorrow. Comfort is a state of ease or freedom from pain or constraint. Concern means to regard something as important and to be involved in providing the solution, to be involved with someone or something. These are all true of God. He is intimately and profoundly involved with us. So how do we understand these emotional terms in reference to God? We understand that they are comparisons, and that these are terms that have meaning within a human frame of reference. But according to the definition of figures of speech, they do not correspond to internal essential realities in God. But they tell us things about God. They tell us He's concerned, He cares, He has. Um, I was almost said compassion. Compassion's a bad word in English because literally means with passion. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word is spontanoin, meaning that God has has mercy, he's, he cares, he's concerned about what we go through. In the history of Christianity, it's frequently noted that, uh, the concept of impassibility is the dominant view. However, in my continued reading, what happens is people come along and they say that this concept was really borrowed by the Greeks. And you're gonna run into that. And I got a bunch of slides ahead on that and we're out of time. But what you have in the ancient Greek thought was this thing called the chain of being. And everything participates in the same being, so that God's just top at the top of the chain. You don't have a creator-creature distinction. This played itself out. Here's a picture of the chain of being, being, according to Aristotle. And I'll just put this up here. This is the uh, the Christian view here is on the left. God is totally distinct, set apart from the finite universe. But in the chain of being idea, which Aristotle, Plato, uh, all bought into, and it's borrowed, in the Middle Ages by Christian thinkers, and they see it's all this. This is the chain of being. God is just a man blown up. This is not the biblical view. Now, the reason I say that is because when we talk about things like analogy, there's different kinds of analogy. And one kind of analogy is the analogy of being. That's what you get out of Plato and Aristotle, is the analogy of being. God's at the top, we're at the bottom, but we're on the same chain. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is a creator-creature distinction. As I pointed out in that article by Robert Culver I mentioned last week, in the early church, their reasoning wasn't, they didn't go to the unmoved mover of Aristotle, they didn't go to Plato's, Idealism, they they argued differently. They argued from Scripture. Cornelius Van Til, who is a noted Reformed apologist, talks about this in terms of of analogy. He says the difference between Christian system it seeks to be consistently analogical and one like that of Romanism and Evangelicalism that does not, is that only in the former is the false ideal of knowledge of the unbeliever rejected. If one does not make human knowledge wholly dependent upon the original self-knowledge and consequent revelation of God to man, then man will have to seek knowledge within himself as the final reference point. That's the problem. We ultimately seek our own uh, from our knowledge from our own experience. Well, I've run out of time, and I don't want to go through. I've got three or four more Uh, quotes here, but one quote I wanted to pull up to close with is a quote from Anselm. Anselm was the 10th century. From Anselm, we had a first clear articulation of substitutionary atonement in church history. He also is the first to articulate the ontological argument of God in his book, The Monologian. And the Proslogian, I misspelled that. That should be Proslogian, an S-P-R-O-S-L-O-G-I-O-N. He writes in his thinking about God, he addresses God, that's the you. He says, you are truly compassionate in terms of our experience, yet you are not so in terms of your own. For when you see us in our misery we experience the effect of compassion you however do not experience this feeling therefore you are compassionate in that you save the miserable and spare those who sin against you and you are not compassionate in that you are not affected by any sympathy for misery what god does, god's actions towards us are experienced by us in terms of our common experiences and so they are communicated to us in those terms, language of accommodation, and they feel to us or they're experienced by us as wrath or anger or jealousy or some of these other emotions. But in the Godhead itself, in the person of God in His essence, they are not emotions. But that does not say that God does not care intensely that God is not involved intimately, that not, God is not concerned profoundly with every detail of our lives. Okay? I hope somehow that clarifies. I hope that uh, gives you something to think about and to realize that this is not something that just kind of pops up out of current theology. In fact, in all the articles that I have read, uh, both pro and con in the last week, they typically speak of classic theology, traditional theism, classic theism holds to impassibility. But modern theology and modern theism does not. And that is not saying. That everyone who doesn 't hold impassibility is liberal or open theist or something like that, but it does emphasize the fact that from the early nineteenth century to the present, a major shift has taken place in how modern man thinks about god, and uh, this this um, charge I want to add this in this lesson, this charge that this came from. Greek philosophy is based on a liberal church historian named Adolf von Harnack who wrote a seven-volume work called History of Dogma in the Middle 1800s in which he tried to argue that primitive Christianity, that is what Jesus taught and Paul taught, was basically lost and what we have as Christianity now is the result of the fathers in the second, third, and fourth centuries basically absorbing Greek philosophy into their systems and that's been rejected by every conservative biblical scholar, basically. But it's said enough, and just like the big lie technique, you say something over and over and over again, people begin to think it's true because there, in some cases there is an element of truth there. Okay, we'll come back next time and press on with uh, Solomon. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think a little bit more about you and realize that you are truly incomprehensible, that we do not... Uh, truly understand you. What we understand about you, what you have revealed, we can comprehend and understand because that is uh, how you have revealed it to us. But it is just a small part of who you are. Father, we pray that as we think about these things, that it will drive us to a greater appreciation for your involvement in our own lives and a deeper realization of our need to study the word and study about you that we may think more accurately about who you are and what you have done